Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Life in Law Podcast. This is your host, Heather Mulder. And today we have a guest that is going to talk about what law school and the firms don't teach but should. And I'm really excited about this topic because it is near and dear to my heart. Basically, every single business client that ever comes in my door that I help with business development has this complaint. <laughs> and after we're finished, is like, why don't we do more of this in-house? Why don't they even teach this in law school? And so when I hooked up with our guest today and we started talking about this, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, you have to come on to the podcast. Welcome, welcome, Molly Huff. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for having me on. This is awesome. And I knew the minute that we first connected, we were going to be friends. And I just love what you're doing on this platform and with your podcast. So thanks for having me on. You're so welcome. And I love what you're doing with your platform, which we will get into in a little bit. So we're going to start at the beginning, though, because I think it's really important for people to share their own stories and how they came to where they are and the lessons that they learned along the way. And so why don't we start with, you know, when did you decide you wanted to go to law school and be a lawyer? And how did that come about? Yeah. So I was never the person that, you know, at five years old, I was like, <laughs> I'm going to be a lawyer and this is my life path. And, um, you know, I, I knew no lawyers. Um, my mom was a gym teacher. Um, you know, it just wasn't really our world. And so after I graduated college with a speech communications degree, which means that I didn't know what I wanted to do and I needed to go get some other degree <laughs> to like figure <laughs> this out, right? Like speech comm isn't really the most transferable degree. So um, I worked for a few years. Thank goodness. I was very burnt out on school and I wanted to make sure that if I did go back to school, it was for a very specific purpose. And so I'm so glad that I got the experience of working. I worked at a nonprofit and I had the typical, I'm so sorry, but like white woman mentality where I was like, I'm going to save the world and this is going to be great. <laughs> and, um, and I worked in this nonprofit and wonderful people, wonderful experience. But truly at the end of the day, it was like, this is not for me or for my strengths or, or what I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think in that time, I had to really distinguish between being personally fulfilled and professionally fulfilled. And that was a lesson that I really had to learn early on. So the nonprofit really fulfilled me personally, but not professionally. So then I got to go do this really cool experience um, where I got to be a young woman's delegate for two years at the UN. And that was just this incredible experience. And everyone I met there was a lawyer or a statesperson who was a lawyer previously. <laughs> and so the wheel started turning and I came back and I was like, well, dang it, I think I got to go to law school. And so I reached out to an old college professor because I truly was like, this is how little I knew about the law. I said, I studied, like, I didn't study pre-law. Can I go to law school? <laughs> like, that's how little I knew. 
And, you know, she laughed at me as well and was like, of course you can, you just have to take the LSAT. So um, anyway, she walked me through that and and ended up really loving my uh, law school experience and, and really just knew that I wanted to be in the legal profession from then on out. Well, I you bring up an interesting point, and this is everybody listening or most people listening are probably are very past this point, but many of you have children. And I think this is an important point to remember. It's something I've had to remind myself because I tell my clients this so much that I have to make sure my boys understand this. Hmm. I think we as a society have gotten really stuck in this. Here's the ladder that you go up, right? Hmm. You go to school. And if you want to get a PhD or a master's or move on, you go do that. And that's great for people who are certain that's what they truly want. Right. A lot of people don't know. And I think there's a lot of value to getting out in the real world and giving it some time and figuring out what are my strengths? What do I enjoy doing? Why do I enjoy doing it? And also, that's still a time where you're growing and into who you are. <laughs> and right. You're still very young. And so it you don't always have to go straight through it. And there's a lot of value to stepping back and taking a year, two, three, four off. Um, I actually know, have some clients who got into other things for many years, did yeah. incredibly well at it, and then decided, you know what? I want to go to law school very late in life and they're thriving in new ways now. And so it's never too late and it's always okay to step back and do other things and make sure that that next step of school, if that's what you choose to do, is truly the right thing for you. Right. And I think especially with law school in particular, you know, I can't speak to other degrees, but I think law school in particular, it is such an asset to have some professional experience before you go in. Um, I think it gives you a lot better perspective. I think you can excel in a lot of ways and not get sucked into the, um, the, you know, this just steam pot of stress that law school can create when you're only around, you know, other 22 year old peers, you know, and there's ways that you can intentionally get out of that. But I think just being a professional and having some more of that experience is, is a real big asset to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, no, it, it's a huge asset. I, I remember right. looking back on my law school days and those who had worked before they went to law school, mm-hmm. they were not anywhere near as stressed as those of us yeah. who hadn't and went straight through and right. had this, you know, oh, my God, if I don't get an A on ev- in every class, my life is ruined. I can never get a great job like attitude. And they're like, please. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's just not true. And those people didn't do worse. Like they weren't doing poorly. And many of them ended up not in big law, actually, but those that I have kept in touch with have actually excelled in new and interesting ways. They're more entrepreneurial. They've done other things. They're much happier. And so there's something to be said for that. (laughs) Yeah, right. And even, you know, Truly, even having a job on your resume before law school, I think just puts you kind of ahead of the game because you're able to say, oh, yeah, I've worked in this professional environment and I know how to, uh, you know, engage with my colleagues and I have some experience and I I mean, very basic stuff, but it definitely helps. It does help. It definitely helps. Okay, so you went to law school, you enjoyed the experience, then what? Yeah, so um, I did the more traditional path. So I did OCIs on campus interviews. Um, I don't know if everyone calls them OCIs. Did you call them OCIs? We didn't at the time, but I hear it more and more from everybody. So, okay. Um, So, yeah, so I did the more traditional route um, because I really got sucked into the 
if I don't get this OCI job, I'm going to fail and I'll never get a job. And then I'll, you know, it just this like rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the first thing that law school really needs to work on is that big law is really the outlier. It's not the norm. That's and right. so for so many people, I mean, it's, you know, it's probably 5% of your classmates get OCI jobs, even if that, depending on what school you're at. And so just recognizing that you don't have to get sucked into that. And that really is, is the exception and not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got sucked into that um, because I'm competitive at heart, uh, classic lawyer mentality um, and went into the experience and really loved my summer associate experience. Cause that's when they're kind of wooing you and, yep. you know, all the fun stuff's going on. And um, yeah. And then I kind of got into my first job and really, um, just recognize that, holy crap, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> like, I thought that I was going to be prepared for being a lawyer. And, you know, your first year, you're just running around with so much anxiety, at least yeah. I was, because I just was so panicked constantly. Um, like, here's a great example that I love to give to other attorneys is that I remember sitting in an office, in a partner's office, and this partner goes, okay, um, I need you to draft uh, interrogatories, RPDs, and RFAs for this case. <laughs> and that truly was the first time I had ever heard those words, which <laughs> is crazy. I was going into civil litigation, and the first time I heard about those terms or like really what that was, was in a partner's office. Like, that is not how that should have gone. So I remember writing down and I spelled incorrectly interrogatory Mm -hmm. and I went on Google and just truly typed in what is an interrogatory. (laughs) And then it, you know, was like, here's the correct spelling for interrogatory. And and that's how I learned what an interrogatory was. And that's not how that should occur. Right. Um, And then I spent a a large part of my time just copy and pasting templates and doing some things right, a lot of things wrong. And, you know, that's just not how the experience should go. Um, Whether, you know, there's a lot of conversation around whose responsibility is it to train and develop new lawyers. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, of whether it should be law school, whether it should be the employer, both, um, you know, some other third party, you know. Yeah, I think it should be both. I think there are things, law school does a really good job of helping you pass the bar, which you need to do, right? And helping you to think in a very different way than most people think so that you can analyze and look at things from a lawyerly perspective. And that Mm -hmm. is its main, has always been its main purpose. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and we talked about this a little bit before I hit record, that's what lawyering used to be. That was the primary, that's what it was for a long time. People who went into law had connections, they had family connections, business was easy, it came easily. And then over time, more and more people went to law school. The law, you know, it blew up and it became more competitive and it became more competitive to get clients and it became harder for a lot of people to get clients. And so it massively changed what it means to be a lawyer. Hmm. And I think, you know, once upon a time, it was more like an apprenticeship early, early on, right? Where they actually did train, but, you know, there'd be a lawyer who would train the younger one and they'd learn, you know, the nuts and bolts and be brought on. But as the whole practice changed, 
people didn't have time. And as, you know, new technology and stuff. And so people didn't have time to do that because it all became about the billable hour, mm-hmm. collecting as much as humanly possible, being as efficient as you can. And so there's a lot of disincentives for yeah. partners and senior associates to help train the younger people, which is really a shame because they're the ones who can best train them within right. the practice area that these ki- these people have chosen, Right. There are some things that law school could do better, like understanding it's also business. One of the best trainings I ever got wasn't like a training training, but it was working for a particular lawyer who very early on allowed me to just sit in and listen to his conversations with clients Hmm. because he wanted to show me, and then we would talk about it afterwards. He wanted to show me that it wasn't just about knowing the law and saying, okay, you can or cannot do this right? It was, all right, we can't do it the way you're saying because of X. And there's no way to get around X. But we can still get to the, like, understanding the business and becoming more of a business advisor, not just a legal advisor, and combining the two. We can still get to the point you want or 90% there by doing this. And Mm -hmm. here's why. Like, he was really good at that. And There needs to be more of that, too. And I think law school, it needs to start with law school about you don't just need to think like a lawyer and advise and counsel on the law. You need to understand business and basic business concepts to be a good lawyer. That's number one. And then also the marketing, the the, the client development stuff, too. Nobody does that very well, it seems. (laughs) So I think think law school, it needs to start with law school, but then the firms need to do a better job. And Mm -hmm. then I also think, so both need to do it, but then you also need the bar to take up some of it because some, like, let's be honest, most people, as you said, maybe 10%, maybe, it was a higher percentage back when I was in law school. Um, It was probably top 10 to 15% got good OCI jobs Mm -hmm. because they were huge classes of people. That Mm -hmm. doesn't happen as much. They're smaller now. And so I think it really is the top five to 10%. And it somewhat depends on the school you're at, right? Right. Higher level schools, higher percentage, so-called lower level schools, much smaller. But the rest of the people are going to very small firms. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just going out to hang a shingle. And they don't have the resources for the training. Like they can do some and they should, like the smaller firms, there's still things they can do, but they don't have the ability, right, to put the time, money, energy into big training programs. And so the bar needs to do a better job too. I think it it needs to be threefold. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, <clears throat> you reminded me of a conversation I had. Um, I was at a, a firm um, opening party a couple weeks ago, and I got speaking to this woman, and she goes, "Oh yeah, you know, I, um, when I first started at this at this firm, um, I had a, a a partner come up to me, and he said, okay, you're gonna follow me everywhere I go for the next three months. So every meeting I'm in, every deposition I'm in, every court I'm in, everywhere, you're gonna follow me." And I just thought to myself, I have not heard a single associate experience like that. That's awesome. Where this guy came in and just truly said, follow me everywhere. I'm going to take you under my wing, every phone call, everything. And she talked about how formative that was because she just got to watch this guy work, you know, and how she was able to reflect some of that and, and, you know, work. Um, And I just thought how valuable that is. And I, but again, I can't think of a single associate um, in today's day and age, this have an experience like that. 
And, you know, so like you said, I think it is a lot of both and of like, we have to have law schools that are um, teaching more practical skills. And I think mm-hmm. that includes soft skills, yes. um, so the hard skills, but the soft skills. And then we have to have these employers take responsibility. But, you know, the issue that comes with that, and here's my, my, some of my fun stats that I like to bring up. So there was an American lawyer survey that was done and it showed that, of law firms had a client say that they don't want first or second year associates on their files, which I understand if I was a client paying $500 an hour, $400 an hour, whatever I'm paying, I would not want to pay a first or second year associate to learn on my file, right? So, but then that begs the question of, okay, well then where do they learn? Like if these clients don't want them on their files, which is understandable. I completely understand that sentiment, but you still have this whole group of lawyers that have to learn. And now we're in a remote working environment where there isn't the walk down the hallway, you know, type of environment. Um, And I'm a big advocate of work from home, but I, but there are limitations on that for every new lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, So new lawyers in particular, I think the fourth thing I'll add to this conversation is New lawyers have to take ownership over their own training and development. Yes. Yes. Law schools have to do it. Law firms have to do it. The bar needs to be doing it. But they also, right now, that doesn't exist. So they have to take ownership over, over it, their own training and development themselves. You have to seek out the right mentors. You have to ask questions. You need to identify, okay, what do I not know? And how do I go learn it? I mean, I this is something that, is particularly like this has always been an issue, y'all. And it's something I see in a lot of young attorneys, like this attitude of, well, they're not teaching me so, oh, well, I hate to break it to you, but you will get behind and you will be dropped like a hot potato and you will have nowhere to go because you won't have the right skills. Absolutely. And I know the pressure to bill is high, Mm -hmm. but I will tell you my first five to really my first eight years of practice I spent a large amount of time, hundreds of hours per year on non-billable, looking stuff up, learning on my own. Yes. Because when I started my practice, I started in in, in a firm that was primarily energy finance. Hmm. And so I had to learn the energy world. Like you had to understand the basics of the businesses that we were trying to finance to really understand why we were doing things the way we were doing and what we were concerned about and why. And I had to go do all that research to understand it so that I could actually do my job. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And then I got into um, the market, took a huge dip, and I got into <laughs> I got into bank mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and so, and bank regulatory stuff. And I had to go do all kinds of research for that. And then I ended up in middle market lending for all kinds of other businesses. And I had to do certain research for different businesses as they came up. Then I switched firms. And it was a totally different practice. It was a structured finance securitization practice that I'd never done oh. any of that work before. My first two years there were like drinking from the water hose, right? Like from the fire hose. I was like bombarded with stuff, the tax implications, like all kinds of stuff that never came up in a regular lending practice that were like a huge issue hmm. in structured finance. And so every time I made a little pivot, I had to go, and that was like the first eight years of my career. Right. So even as a senior associate, right before making partner and after I made partner, I've told this story before, but I made partner in 2008 as a structured finance attorney. That work was gone. 
Like yeah. I made partner with some business of my own, which never, it all went to zero and I had zero business by the end of that year. 2009, wow. I had to pivot again right, and start from scratch as a young partner to build my own book of business. So as a young partner, I then had to go relearn more stuff because <laughs> I was wow. pivoting yet again. And so, you know, it never ends and you do need to take your responsibility for your professional career and development. It is not all up to them. If you want to succeed and be a good lawyer, you're going to have to go do some of that stuff on your own, which is seeking out mentors, asking good questions, seeking out reading materials, looking for courses that can help you. There's all kinds of areas for that, both within the area of your practice like from the legal side, but also the business side, it's important to understand the business aspects that play into why you do things the way you do them, especially if you're on the transactional side. But I'm willing to bet that's helpful for litigators too. In fact, I know <laughs> yeah. it is. Right. And then also the the marketing, networking, business building side. There's a lot to it. Yeah. And it's just, um, it's just changed too. Like you pointed this out earlier in the podcast, but uh, you know, it's no longer, um, Hey, I'm going to Google employment attorney and three attorneys pop up (laughs) and I look on the firm website and I decide which bio I like the best, right? Like that doesn't exist anymore. There's so much noise in the online space and you have to find a way to stand out be generous with your clients or, you know, not even your clients yet. You just have to be Mm -hmm. generous with the Mm -hmm. people around you, you know, be intentional, as you said, ask good questions um, and really kind of build this brand. And like, I've heard a lot of negative, I think conversations around like everyone has a personal brand these days and like, can't we all just be ourselves and normal and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, this is what it takes. So you have to have a conversation with yourself of you don't need to go out and be an influencer. No No. one's asking you to be an influencer because that does sound exhausting, but you do have to put your services out there for people to find them. And if you're not willing to do that, how are people going to find you there? And they're not. And and I would say, I think branding has gotten a bad name to it. Your personal brand as an individual lawyer is really, what do people say about you? Mm -hmm. Right. And It's created by how you show up every single day with your clients. Right. And then how you show up online and then at networking events and at conferences. And really, it's as simple as the way you show up for your clients and create strong relationships with them should be the way you show up to everything. That's really it. It, it, And that's how I try to tell my clients, don't overthink it. You're not creating some like persona. It's you. And you want to be you and you want to highlight the best aspects of you by leveraging your own strengths. That's why I do strengths-based client development. Right. Because it's the easiest thing to do. It's more enjoyable. It's what you're good at. And it will attract clients that are attracted to – you're more likely to be attracted to you who you will connect with better. And so that just makes it so much easier. And I know we're talking about all kinds of things. It's very overwhelming, right? To hear, yeah, especially as young lawyers, oh my God, I have to go do this and this and this and uh, and it can feel that way, but it doesn't actually have to be as hard as it sounds. As long as you're intentional about it and kind of have a strategic plan every year for, okay, this year I need to grow in this way. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm going to focus on primarily. And then the next year, like you just build it over time. And there's lots of resources out there, right? So there's coaches like me who can help you. There's 
mentors within your firm that can help you. There's always people who love to help that you can ask more questions of. Find those people and make them your mentors. Do not stick just with whoever the firm gives you if you're in a firm. (laughs) And if you're not in a firm, get active in the bar and find older attorneys who you respect, who you want practice your practice to be like, and try to, you know, reach out to them to be your mentor. You don't have to say, hey, can you be my mentor? You just reach out, like create a friendship and they will give back. Right. No, I I completely agree. I, my other, I I love numbers. So um, the other fun uh, number that I'll throw out this year is that, so the law firm culture survey that was done this year, Mm -hmm. the 2022 version, um, the number one thing that associates asked for was training and development. That was over diversity and wellness and all sorts of stuff, which I think speaks volumes and I think wraps up what we're saying really nicely, which is that if this is the number one thing that you want, you have to come into this with an ownership mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, So as much as, you know, I totally agree that all of this can feel very overwhelming, but even if you just walk away from this podcast, the one thing you can say is, oh, I need to recognize that my firm isn't going to do it. My law school didn't do it. The bar's not doing it, but I can do it. And let yes. me take one step in this ownership mindset to start working towards my own professional development. Yes. And I have some podcasts that might be helpful in how to yeah. get started and being more proactive for yourself in your own professional development. And I will put links in the show notes to those to help you out on getting started. And I will also put a link for anybody out there who is struggling with client development, (laughs) because I know that's really something that they just try to like, okay, just go figure it out. Nobody gives very good training on it. And it's not as hard as you think, in all honesty. I think most people make it harder and more complicated than it needs to be because they go and they look at what everybody else does and then thinks they have to do all of those things. Not true. Right. <laughs> you just right. need to focus on one or two things that you enjoy doing that you're good at that would help and be consistent right. with it. And so I have a, a client development blueprint that I can link to also that helps you with that, like figuring out what are the right strategies for me and how do I get started and really kind of breaks it down a little bit more simply. So I will definitely put that in there. So, okay. So you, you got into the firm life and you realized I'm missing out on so much. How did you like figure it out for yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think as I was working in firms, um, you know, my story is not unique. Um, My story is what a lot of people struggle with, which was the billable hour model. And I think I, you know, just kind of had this moment where I was looking around and thinking, I don't know if like there's anyone here who's whose practice or life I really want to model. And that became a really hard realization because you're working so hard. Like it's like, okay, get through law school. Okay, get through the bar exam. Okay, get your job. Okay, do a really good job because they're trying to weed everybody out. Like just, you know, keep going, keep going. And so, you know, it was in this kind of fourth year of practice that I just kind of had that moment of realization and also recognized that. I've always been very entrepreneurial, which is why I gravitated towards business development. And I was really successful with that early on and which I'm very grateful for, but it was kind of like, I caught the, you know, I caught the mouse and then I was like, well, now what? (laughs) I I did this thing. I brought in all this business. Now what? And so that's when I, I really started talking to other associates and I've always been really passionate um, in just amplifying the associate experience because I don't think that's done very well or very much. And that's, you know, the majority of 
people's experiences being an associate. Um, yep. So I just started talking to other associates and trying to pour into them and, and get an understanding of, of the problems that they're facing. And over and over and over again, everything that came up was, I just need to know how to do my job. Like, I'm not asking for much, um, but I would like to know how to do my job. It's and so simple and yet scary that that's what we said, you know, they're saying. I know, I know. And this was, um, I had this cool campaign where I spoke to associates truly from East Coast to West Coast, and every conversation was the same. It was oh. not being trained. I'm not being developed. I am very lonely. I'm not connected to my colleagues. Um, a lot of that's the pandemic, but a lot of those issues existed before the pandemic. It just made them worse. It made them worse. Exactly. So I kind of took all of this and just said, well, this is, this is a problem. I can solve this problem. I don't know why we're not solving this problem. Um, so let me put some time and energy towards it and just started, you know, slowly putting things together and slowly working towards it. And, and it just got really overwhelming response. Um, and that's been awesome and huge. Of course, there's the 10% that are not excited about this. Um, and I've definitely uh, received some negative feedback on this. But I think- So wait, what's the this? Um, the training and developing attorneys and amplifying the associate experience. I think people don't like me speaking very openly about the associate experience. And I- never speak about it in a negative pointing fingers way. I always speak about it and practice what I preach, which is ownership, right? So I always point out partners can be doing this and associates can also be doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is both and thing. We can't sit here and play this like victim mindset thing associates, you know, but um, there's definitely things that can be changed. Well, so I would say for those of you who hear this and go, well, you know, your your gut instinct is to think this is an attack on you mm -hmm. that's telling you something about you probably do need to step back and reassess and say okay how could I be doing better to help others in my profession because I feel very strongly that if you become a partner and you you know I know you probably had to figure it out on your own and that sucks mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that everybody below you should have to do the same thing and ultimately the world we have created within the firms, especially the bigger firms, but even the medium-sized firms, which has trickled down into to, to impact all lawyers, really, and all the smaller firms as well in negative ways, is not sustainable in the long term. We cannot have, continually have associates who are not trained well, um, pay them the salaries we're paying them, not put into them the actual training that they should be getting, especially to be able to collect the rates that we want them to collect. And, you know, expect our clients to keep paying for it. It's just not right. sustainable. And what I've seen, and I see this over and over again, my big law partner clients complain profusely about the lack of good help. Yes. They cannot build the teams they envision and want to build because they cannot find the right people that can truly do this stuff for them that they need without having to spend an inordinate amount of their own time that they do not have because the firm tells them they need to bill and collect a certain amount on their own hours as well. So like we've created this, especially big law, this unsustainable the partners who do want to train have real trouble finding the time to train because they're not allowed that time. 
Right. And then nobody gets trained below them. And then, you know, and I think a lot of this has to do with just the system that's been created and a lack of creativity and, and the fact that everybody's been so busy for the last few years. Well, we're headed into a potential downturn. <laughs> I've not seen that impact any of my clients' actual work yet, but we all know it will happen. For whatever reason, that tends to be the time where law firms pull back and do nothing for people, but it really should be the time where they invest more time and energy, at least, into helping people do better, get better. Right. Well, and it costs about, um, this is from J.D. Wright uh, Match and Profile that said it costs about 400000 per associate anytime an associate leaves. So mm-hmm. the amount of time it takes to like get somebody up on the amount of billables that they should have um, and the time that it you know takes somebody to leave and the sort of you know off-ramp, $400,000. And law, the top 400 law firms each year, so this is not 10 years, this is each year, are losing $9 billion a year. It's crazy. It's crazy. It So it's like when we have these conversations about, well, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't. It's like you are losing insane amounts of money because you're not willing to take a breath, take a step towards training and developing your attorneys. And these like monthly lunch and learns aren't it. No, a lunch <laughs> and learn doesn't not do it. it. Yeah. And I'm I'm actually really disheartened by the number of firms I reach out to to say, hey, would you like me to come in and talk about or help with? And yeah, they, they'll have me come in to speak for some 30 to 45 minutes CLE related thing or business development related thing or whatever. But that's that's the bulk of what they do. And I always, you know, offer up if you ever want to partner and like do something more because mm-hmm. I can do longer trainings. And right. I have, you know, trainings where we could go in for four, six, eight hours or do it in piecemeal over the course of months with different, you know, business development. And you know, and there's other people out there around writing and very simple things that a lot of people don't know how to write a very basic email to clients. And like it starts True. at the top, like somebody yeah. needs to be helping people to do these things. And it doesn't actually take that much time or money or energy. And yet it saves so much in the long run. And something you said earlier where you're talking about, you know, associates want training more than wellness and DEI and all of that. It's actually... We compartmentalize these things too much. They are interlinked. They are. Especially when it comes to stress management and mental health. The training and development, lack of it, makes people feel like they are not cared for, like they don't matter. It it it's it's part of what creates burnout. And right. create and and so just by investing that in them, it's not always about throwing more money at people, but about creating more programs and partnering with the right people outside of the firm even to bring in new creative ideas for how to do this, to help train these people from the bottom up. And I personally believe there need to be different programs at different levels because every level, every couple of years, you transition to a new level and it it's a step up in your emotional intelligence skills, in your communication skills, in your leadership skills, in your business development skills. And there need to be programs around this. You would, their mental health would be better. Their stress management would be better. They would be better employees and they would be way more likely to stay because they'd be more engaged. They feel like you care and you're much less likely to lose them. And I've never understood this attitude of, oh, we'll just churn and burn and let them go and waste all of that time, energy, money that you have spent. Why not spend a little more 
and make a majority of them partners that then bring money into the firm one day. Like, right. I don't get that. <laughs> right. Right. And there's, you know, there's lots of studies out there too that show the the more diverse firms make a lot more money per partner than the less diverse firms. So it, you know, like you're saying, it's just, it's all connected. It's all connected. Well, diversity, and this is something that I think we've gotten away from. I, th- I saw a really interesting post from a DEI person recently is no individual is diverse. No one mm. is. There's not an individual out there who's diverse. Mm. Diversity means looking at a group of people and seeing what the differences and in, in similarities are and ensuring yeah. you're a truly diverse group of people based on a lot of different characteristics. Right. That brings creativity. That brings like, that's why they're, they're more profitable because they're more creative. They think right. outside the box more. They challenge one another more, which makes for a be- better business model and better client service overall. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know I had a um, a law student uh, reach out to me recently and and they were, you know, heading into some interviews and um, were asking about diversity in the profession and so on and so forth. And I said, well, you know, have you looked at their website? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, every firm is going to tell you that they have diversity in their programs and so on and so forth. Like no one's going to be like, yeah, no, we, do, we don't do that. <laughs> You know, right, so right. Just, what is, you know, what does the website say? What is, you know, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? What, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. It's, um, it's looking at a group of people and understanding that there's so much creativity and better ideas to be had when we can understand each other and come from different perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So you created an actual course to help young associates, right? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so through all of this sort of problem solving, um, again, I, I kind of just said, well, I can fix this problem. You know, it's not the solution, capital T, but it's a solution. Um, and I want to help as many new attorneys as possible. Um, so yeah, so I created, um, similar to you, there's a, a, a business development course for new attorneys. Um, and that's a very simple kind of helps them walk through a business development plan that I created. Um, and then there's a litigation for new attorneys course um, that truly just walks through let's talk through written discovery. Here's, you know, in the definition section, here's what you should be doing and looking at and thinking about. And this isn't just some random section that you should copy and paste. Like mm-hmm. we truly kind of break some of this down and then, you know, or even something as simple as what are the objections I make in a deposition? <laughs> you know, right. um, so let's walk through that and and why these de- or why these objections exist. And, you know, here's PDFs that you can take with you into your everyday practice and, you know, or even simple things like, how do I use my LAA? Well, here's a list of how you should be using your LAA effectively. And, you know, so it's a very simple things that we just forget that new attorneys mm-hmm. don't know how to do. And mm-hmm. so, and that's not their fault. And so I just want to come alongside them and equip them with as much information as possible. That's awesome. And so yeah. I will put a link to where to find your stuff in the Great. show notes. Have you thought about expanding that at all? Like into, cause there's a, there's a lot of different aspects. You probably, because you're more of a litigator, would have to find other people to help with like real estate and, mm-hmm. you know, di- varying. And I don't know that you could do it as easily as you do with the litigation, but perhaps yeah. there's something that they could utilize. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think about it every day, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. No, my my ultimate goal is to expand and to have a whole video library of, of stuff that people can use. Um, that's a very on-demand thing. And then um, the, the goal kind of from there 
um, is to really focus on small law firms and creating uh-huh. programs for them. Um, Cause I think more people are gravitating towards smaller law firms and I completely support that for a majority of reasons. So yeah, I think about it all the time, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a litigator, so I will definitely have to bring people in to, to help me with that and put that together. But um, yeah. And then the other piece of it is that we do cohort based classes. Um, So I don't want people to come in and just buy this course that they watch, you know, 10% of and then never finish. Because I truly believe to my core, the other piece that lawyers need and new lawyers in particular is community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to provide as much connection and community as I can to other lawyers um, so that they just can have a space to say, wow, you don't know that either. Okay. It's not just me. Okay. I can take this exhale and recognize that we're all in this together. And so I, I, very intentionally put it through cohorts. Um, Good. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And it's funny because lawyers never like to admit they don't know something, even partners. I got to tell you guys, partners who've been practicing for 20 years, things will come up they don't know anything about that they have to go ask an expert, look it up, research it. Like, I always thought of that as interesting. Oh, it's a challenge. This is new. So this is interesting. I get to go find out new information. And like, you have to switch that mindset because- the normal brain, especially the way us lawyers and high achievers work is, I don't know that. How can I not know that? I should know that. I don't have the answers to everything. And like, no, you're not supposed to. (laughs) And that inhibited so much of my career, Heather, because I wanted to pretend like I had it figured out. Yeah. And I could have been a much better lawyer much sooner (laughs) if I had just asked questions. Oh yeah, no. And 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 so if you take nothing from today, I mean definitely if you are a younger associate needing these answers, go check out her website and figure out how she can help you. Yeah. Um but really at every level and stage, ask questions, look it up, find the experts in the areas that you don't know. And look at it as, as, well, this is interesting because remember when you went to law school, you probably went because you were intrigued by the law and all the vastness of it. And how it fit together, That's what, that was me at least. And a lot of us go, to it, go into it for a reason. And then somehow we forget to ask those questions and be curious and continue to have that mindset when we start practicing because we convince ourselves we're supposed to have all the answers. And we're just not. You're not supposed to have all the answers. You can't. No, you you absolutely cannot. And I, I completely understand the fear and the anxiety that comes with all of that. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you, Heather. If there's something you walk away with today, understand that that partner also doesn't have it all figured out. Nope, they don't. And they're probably have the same little voice in their head. Oh my God, you don't know this. How could you not know this? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the voice still exists in probably 85 to 90% or more of the partners out there. Um, and cause I work with both associates and partners and I probably work with more partners than associates and let me just tell you, every partner that comes to me has that voice and they have to learn to like, that voice is okay. <laughs> it's there Absolutely. for a reason and it's okay to have that voice and it's okay to listen to the voice and it's okay to like question it and there are healthy ways to deal with it, to mm. make you more comfortable with it and not produce so much anxiety, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. It's yeah. We, yeah. It's just, it's going to be okay. Like just it is. Breath in, deep breath out. It's going to be okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. This was super fun. 
So people can find me on my LinkedIn. Um, it's just at Molly Huff and you spell Huff, H-O-U-G-H. It's like rough or tough. I always tell people. Um, and then you can also check out my website, which is jurisconsultinstitute.com. Um, and then otherwise you can find me on Instagram at the same thing at jurisconsultinstitute. And I will have links to all of those places in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for listening to the Life & Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both Life & Law, including the Life & Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.